Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Phil said, I'm Jonathan Alasco. I'm the Associate Director of Missions and Outreach here at Bethany. And we're in a sermon series called Restoration, Life in the Spirit Admits Racism. And Scott started, Pastor Scott started our sermon off with uh, a vision of the church's engagement with racial justice, a vision rooted in Revelation 7. And so we're going to continue this series by looking at Acts 2. And as I was studying and reflecting on this sermon, or this particular text actually, I was reminded of a story that my mom had told me years ago that really stuck with me. My mom came to the U.S. With, um, from El Salvador. She was only 21, and she didn't know any English. She was very limited, but eventually she made it work. She studied hard, and eventually she got a job at World Vision, this humanitarian Christian organization, and worked with their donations processing center, taking calls all day, talking with donors almost exclusively in English. And at that point, her English was, was good enough. It worked. It wasn't her first language, but she made it work. But yet there there's some hiccups. Uh, at times, she tells me a story when she was trying to get a hold of a donor. She calls this donor and, and is reading the, the name and says, Hi, can I speak with Miss Heater? And the donor says, Oh, sorry, there's no Miss Heater here. And so my mom, she pauses the call and, and then she thinks about it for a second. She calls back and she says, Hi, can I speak with Miss Heather? And apparently Miss Heather was the right call all along. So English is hard. <laughs> But she made it work, and people were usually gracious and kind. But she remembers a different story. 25 years later, she was uh, still working the same donations processing center, and she's talking with the donor, and very quickly, this donor asks, can I speak with someone who doesn't have an accent? And so my mom, the, the consummate professional, politely and kindly says, sure, one moment, please. And she transfers the call to her supervisor and fellow Spanish-speaking immigrant, Jose Elenas. Now, I have a, a, I don't know this donor, of course, but I have a strong suspicion that if my mom perhaps had a, a British accent, a German, Italian, Swedish accent, she would not have received that same request. But I also know that accents from Latin American or Asian immigrants in the U.S., they've been historically associated with identities, with people, groups that just haven't had the same value as the dominant culture. And because their social identities don't have the same value, their, their voices often are unheard or even unwelcome in, in a dominant culture. And so when racially marginalized immigrants, they speak, they try to be heard, they're, they're told to differing degrees, can I speak to someone who doesn't have an accent? With an underlying message being, can I speak to someone who doesn't have your accent? Subliminally, an accent I associate or we associate with culturally and racially inferior people. And so this is a sad reality of our racialized society, but in the midst of this marginalization and discrimination caused by racism, I believe our our scripture today offers really good news. The good news of our scripture is that God's spirit brings comfort and liberation to those whose accents and racial identities have been marginalized. God's spirit brings a challenge to those who have been deceived by this lie that certain cultures, races, and languages are closer to God than others. And finally, God brings a, a commission to not just be people who, who appreciate the Spirit, to receive life from the Spirit, but also to realign our entire lives to participate in the Spirit's liberating, restoring work. So comfort, challenge, and commission. These are what I believe are some of the invitations revealed to us in this uh, scripture. And so as we explore it more, I invite you to, to pray with me. 
God, we thank you for uh, your word, a word that um, not only informs us, but in a real powerful way actually transforms us. So may we not just um, read about you, but really encounter the living God as we explore who you are and what it is you seek to speak to us today and helping us to respond faithfully. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the common questions I hear from folks who, who care about racial justice is, what do I do? And I think this is an important and even necessary question, but I also think that as, as Christians, that's not our first question. I like how Latin American theologian Rene Padilla, he puts it, he says that what Christians do must only be in response to what God has already done. And so maybe thinking about in the dynamic of grace and salvation, it's the same thing. Because of God's love for humanity, God responded to our captivity to sin, rescued us by giving us the gracious gift of, of Jesus and so then, as recipients of that gift, we respond accordingly, seeking to live grace-shaped lives. That's the movement. That's the dynamic. God initiates. We respond accordingly. And so if you want to know how our scripture speaks to our racialized society, how it informs a faithful response, we have to first understand what this text reveals about what God does, who God is, and how God moves in our world. So let's look at our, our narrative or at least some of the context behind it, it's known as the Pentecost narrative. Now, this story may be familiar to some of you if you grew up in the church, but if you grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, like myself, then you definitely know this story. This is our home scripture. We love this text. It's, we named the whole movement after this story. And it's a story that, that is really beautiful because it speaks to God's desire to indwell God's people with God's very own empowering presence enabling them to live in a new way as a new people. And, and I love the story because it just felt so encouraging to know that I was worshiping a God who wasn't this faraway figure who may or may not care about what's going on with me, but this story revealed a God that was personal, that was close, that wanted to have a meaningful, powerful experience with him through his spirit. And yet it wasn't until many years later that I realized that the way I was taught to read this story was good, but yet in some ways, incomplete. I understood the, the vertical implications of the story, but not so much the horizontal. But I remember once, uh, perhaps in high school, I was looking through my dad's bookshelf, and I came across a book written by a Pentecostal theologian named Edwin Villafañe. And the book was called El Espíritu Liberador, or, or in English, The Liberating Spirit. And this book introduced me to what are called liberating Pentecostal theologians, and these works have helped me read this narrative, not just as a, as a story of a, of a personal relationship with God's Spirit, as important as that may be, that's, that's necessary, but also as a testament to God's liberation and comfort through God's Spirit to those who have been marginalized in society, to those whose skin color and accents have been rejected. So let's get a little bit before the Pentecost story and see how Luke sets it up. At the beginning of Acts, Luke says, he's talking about this first book, which meaning the, the gospel of Luke. And so what he wants us to do, he, he's telling us that the story of the church in Acts is, is closely connected to the story of, of Jesus in, in Luke. And so after his resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus is spending time with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God and that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what Luke wants us to do is he's making this connection that the same spirit that baptized Jesus, as described in Luke, that came upon Jesus, so he proclaimed liberty for the oppressed, freedom for the prisoner, that same spirit will now come upon his followers. 
So the mission of Jesus and the mission of the early church are both led by this liberating spirit. And yet God's spirit rarely acts the ways we expect her to. So going to our story, it's Pentecost, this this religious cultural feast. And a large number of Jewish pilgrims come from all over the world. They're gathered in Jerusalem. And the believers, both male and female, they're gathered in one place. And suddenly they hear what sounds like a mighty wind. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing they do is they speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And this multi-ethnic, multilingual crowd hearing is what's, here's what's going on. And they're mystified because they can't believe that these believers are speaking in their own language. Now, I really want us to pay attention to this element of the story in ways that I think is often missed. I know I've missed it. Notice that the Holy Spirit didn't prompt the believers to speak in, say, Greek, which was the dominant language of that culture, which many people probably would have understood. God's Spirit didn't force everyone to conform to the dominant culture. Instead, the Spirit respected the, the, the linguistic particularity of the multi-ethnic crowd. The Holy Spirit, the first translator of the gospel, chose to bear witness to God's glory by embracing and honoring a diversity of cultures, even cultures the powerful in society had deemed as inferior. So after the believers, uh, hearing the believers speak in their native language, the crowd said, all those people speaking in our languages, aren't they Galileans? How is it that they speak in our own languages? So for some context, Galileans in those days, they were despised by the more sophisticated Jews in Jerusalem. To put it very succinctly, the Galileans were the rejects of society, rejected politically, religiously, economically. Every form of rejection you can think of, that's where the Galileans, geographically, And they also face strong pressure to assimilate to foreign cultures and identities. And so with this context in mind, we can read the crowd's question as something like, aren't these people ignorant and backward Galileans? How is it that they're able to speak in our own languages? Like the Galileans, racially marginalized people today face multiple layers of rejection. Like the Galileans, we are pressured to assimilate to the cultural standards of the dominant culture And as a result of this constant rejection and pressure to assimilate, some of us even become ashamed of who we are, asking God, why did you make us this way? But for those who have been rejected because of their race or their culture, God offers a powerful and and comforting message. What human beings reject, God chooses as his very own. Latino theologian Virgilio Elizondo, he he calls this the Galilee principle because it's rooted in the good news that when God became human and entered our world, he did so as a Galilean. When Jesus carried out his liberating mission, he did so in Galilee, among Galileans. When he chose disciples and who decided who would be the first recipients of his spirit, he chose Galileans. Now, this may not have made sense to the rest of the world, but for God, this welcome of the rejected was always a part of his plan. So in the midst of the crowd's confusion, Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd and he's explaining what's going on here. He's saying that what you're witnessing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. God's future has broken into their present and is awaiting its final fulfillment. But in the meantime, God's spirit has been made available to everyone. Not just the prophets or the priests or the elites, but sons and daughters, young and old, servants, both male and female. And here, the, the Holy Spirit is dismantling, disrupting, disrupting structures of power and privilege. And I, this is why theologian Justo Gonzalez, he describes Pentecost 
as a resounding no to any movement that seeks to make all Christians think alike, speak alike, and behave alike. The miracle of Pentecost makes it clear that within the Christian community, no language, culture, or race should be more important than the others. I also like how Gonzalez notes that at the beginning of Luke, Mary, the mother of Jesus, after being told that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, she's filled with God's Spirit. As a result, she sings a song, glorifying God, rejoicing in God. And in her song, she sings about God's mighty deeds, scattering the proud, bringing down the rulers, but lifting up the humble and filling the the hungry with good things. And now, at the beginning of Acts, Luke tells a a spirit-filled story that validates, that brings to life Mary's spirit-inspired song. And so for those who've experienced the sting, the humiliation, the, the, the rejection of racism, they too can sing a song to God. Because of what the Spirit did at Pentecost, they can take comfort in knowing that the accents, the, the skin colors that the, the world may reject, God elevates, God celebrates and chooses as his very own. And so God's multilingual Spirit not only brings a beautiful comfort, but also uh, an important challenge a challenge to the nature, the, the movement, the, the character of racism. You to, to, more, to unpack what this challenge looks like and what it means, we're going to have to dive into a little bit about what we mean by racism, how it functions. And I recognize this is a, a daunting task for a, a single sermon, so I won't try to do too much, but perhaps providing some stories that may weave and make things clear or clearer. Uh, I grew up in Federal Way, Washington. And for those of you who don't know, Federal Way is one of the most ethnically diverse uh, school districts in the, in the state. And so I had classmates in my public school who were just from all over the world. And we had, you know, students from Moldova and Cambodia and Haiti. And, and many of these students embraced their, their culture, their national heritage. And it's just a, a very normal thing. And, and in some ways, I tried to do the same. I wasn't born in El Salvador, but my parents were. And so I would, as a kid, go to El Salvador every other year, visit family. It was a really important part of my cultural identity, and I, I wanted to be proud of it. But El Salvador is a very small country. And I remember telling people, like, oh, my parents are from El Salvador, and people would look at me kind of confused and not sure where that was. And I think I started to feel embarrassed. You know, maybe I was thinking, like, is El Salvador just this dinky little country that all people know about them is, is gang violence? What also was hard is our soccer team was really bad. Like, we were trash. <laughs> and for seventh grade, Jonathan, that hurt my soul. That was, that was painful. And so I'm beginning to feel embarrassed about my cultural background. And I wanted this cultural identity that, that had status, that had a respect. And so I, I, I cheated a little bit. Around the middle of seventh grade, I decided to tell people that I was from Spain. <laughs> now, hear me out. That wasn't a complete lie. Because people from, uh, most people from El Salvador are from mixed ancestry, mixed indigenous, mixed uh, Europe, Spanish-European. And even though I had had no meaningful connection to Spain, technically, I had, I, you know, there, there was something there. I recognized the distance there, but I didn't really care. Spain was cool. Spain was respected. People knew Spain. Spain had a really good soccer team, okay? They were, they were crushing it in those days. And unfortunately, this... Spanish-Jonathan phase wasn't really sustainable. I think people saw through it. And so I gave up this ambition uh, to try to be Spanish and over the years learned to embrace and even love my own Salvadoran heritage. And 
Years later, I would look back at this time and, and see it as nothing more as a, as a harmless, embarrassing, cringy at worst phase during my teenage years. But I remember in college starting to learn more about the history of Latin America, colonialism, race, racism, and as I'm making these connections, I'm, I'm rereading this experience as something more than just a silly phase. I began seeing this experience as uh, perhaps evidence of the ways that I had been affected, perhaps even better said, infected by the lie, the idolatry of racism. And so one of the books that's really helped me in recent years is called Brown Church by uh, Robert Chow Romero, um, a fellow Christian, a friend of mine even. And in this book, he, he comments on the tendencies of some Latinos to, to, to say I'm Spanish or my family's from Spain. And, and I read this, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one. And then Robert says when, this is what really stuck out to me, when he says, when Latinos make these kind of comments, it's, it's not the same as when white people in the U.S. say, oh, I have, you know, my grandparents from Sweden came in the 1890s. When a Latino person says, I'm from Spain, often they're making an, uh, uh, unknowingly a, a claim of racial superiority. Implicitly, they are saying, I identify with the Spanish conquerors and the colonial society they created. I have a privileged status in this racial caste system because I descend from the Spanish and not the indigenous, not the Africans. And so Latinos often make this claim even though no one in their family has set foot in Spain since the 1600s. Others do so even though it's so clear they have uh, indigenous or African ancestry. And so I read this, I'm like, come on, Robert, like, why you got to call me out like that? This dude, he just called me out and, I, and that was hard, but it was enlightening. He was right. When my seventh grade self claimed to be from Spain without even knowing it, I was, this self-identification reinforced and was rooted in this racist 500-year legacy. Because when the Spanish colonized present-day Latin America, they created this racial hierarchy. The Spanish, the white Spanish were at the top. At the bottom were those deemed African and Indian. In the middle were these like 14 to 20 different categories of racial mixture like mestizo and mulatto. And so 500 years later, this caste system, the legacy of it is really obvious. If you ever go to Latin America, you, you can see it pretty clearly. When you go to the poor areas, you will see most of the people are from African or indigenous descent. And when you see the people in power, the, the politicians, the, the celebrities, those are from Spanish ancestry. And so how does this all relate to our, our faith and our, our scripture today? I think it's so important that if you want to be a community who lives in the Spirit amidst racism, it's not just to know who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does, but we have to see racism for the idolatrous lie that it is. I love how Robert puts it. He, he writes that idolatry is at the center of our racial legacy and the racial systems that exist today because those from Spain or who imagine themselves from Spain imagine themselves and their cultures as the supreme manifestation of God. Now, it may feel like I'm picking on Spain here. That's not my point. I'm, I'm not hating on Spain. My hope is to present a perhaps more historically, a theologically helpful understanding of how, what racism is, how it functions. This series isn't about engaging ethnocentrism, as problematic as that may be. We're, we're intentional about the language we're using. This is a series about engaging racism. And racism and ethnocentrism are related, but they're not the same. So black theologian George Kelsey, he helps make the distinction. Racism is a relatively modern phenomenon that, whereas ethnocentrism, that's existed since the beginning of humanity. 
It's actually quite normal for people in groups to have pride in their groups, to compete. In some ways, that's okay. In some ways, it becomes problematic. But what I'm talking about, when I'm talking about racism, what we're talking about in this series, is when a particular group has acquired the power to establish themselves as the reference point for God's image and to evaluate them others according to their proximity to their own group. That's when ethnocentrism becomes racism. That's what we're describing. And so George Kelsey describes racism as a distorted or a twisted form of faith. It's not just about being divided among cultural lines. That's, that's, that can be bad. But even more sinister is this idolatrous belief system that goes against who God is, what God does, and how God engages his humanity. The idol of racism elevates white people, white cultural standards as the ultimate standard. But the spirit of Pentecost challenges any lie, any structure, any system, any theology that denies the full humanity of his beloved black, brown, and mixed children. The spirit of Pentecost challenges any ideology that tricks young people into thinking that they need to reject the cultural heritage God gave them. The spirit of Pentecost challenges any value system that tells black and brown immigrants, your voices, your accents are not welcome. And the spirit of Pentecost challenges any arrogance that we may take on to think, oh, I'm immune from that. I know I'm not immune to the deceit of racism. And so the spirit-led challenges gives us hope that the lie and the idol of racism is a false faith. It can't stand before the truth and power of God's spirit. But this challenge also cuts through our very own hearts, exposing the ways that we too may have been deceived by this idol. And so the main point of this section here is that the spirit of Pentecost and this idol of racism, they're diametrically opposed. And the question before us is, which direction will we take? Which, who will we worship and follow? And so this brings us to our last section, commission. In light of what God's spirit does and, and how racism functions and is so opposed to God's spirit, what is God commissioning us into? To, to explore this and answer this question, I want us to go back to Acts chapter 2, to the end uh, of this chapter, where the beginning talked about God's pouring of his spirit, but often these stories, the end and the beginning of Acts chapter 2, are held apart. But I want us to help see the connections, because it's really important for us to understand what we're doing. So we'll have the text hopefully on the screen. I'm going to read uh, verses 42 through 47. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." So what Luke is describing here is that this, this new community is, is the fulfillment of the pour, outpouring of God's spirit. The, this new community, their dedication to fellowship, worship, generosity, caring for those who are in need, this is the natural, even the obvious response to being filled with God's spirit. This is what Jesus promised and intended for his people, that God's people would not just enjoy God's spirit and say, yes, we have great power, we have joy, but that they will respond by living their lives in alignment with God's spirit. Remember what I said earlier. God initiates gracious action and then we are to respond. And this is what the church is doing right here. They didn't just receive God's gracious gift, God's gracious spirit and say, 
cool, I can hang out, I can do what I want, and when I, go to, when I die, I can go to heaven. Instead, they responded by devoting themselves to a radical new way of living, a reordering of their social and economic relationships, a costly commitment to share their lives with one another and sell what they had in order to care for those in need. And so Paul captures the dynamic very concisely in Galatians 5.25. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, as the NIV translation puts it. In other words, since God gave us new life in and through His Spirit, let's respond by realigning our entire lives and relationships with that Spirit. So this is what the first believers did in Acts 2, and that same invitation is before us today. So God's commission for us is that in the midst of racism, we would live as spirit-filled people whose lives keep in step with the spirit of God rather than the spirit of racism. So what would that look like for all of us here gathered and those watching online? I think the, the language of, of faithfulness is helpful because I can't give a formula. There's no one uh, blueprint, but perhaps a framework of faithfulness might be helpful. So God is unequivocally opposed to racism, that is clear, but the way God's people join in that work, in that opposition, that restoration, that's going to look different. And so our call is to avoid the two extremes. One is passive withdrawal. We retreat. We say, I can't do it too much or I don't get it. The other extreme is trying to do too much, transcending our limitations. And in the middle is a a space of faithful engagement. And that's what we're trying to discern. For the past four years, I've been part of the staff leadership of our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation here at Bethany. And during these years, I've I've wrestled with the question of of faithfulness. What does faithfulness mean for me in this community, given who I am at this point in my life with with these people? And over the years, there have been times where I could say, yes, I've been faithful. Praise God. But there's also been times where I look back and I'm honest. I'm like, I haven't been faithful. Either I was trying to do too much too quickly or I abdicated responsibilities that were entrusted to me. And so this has been discouraging, it's been frustrating, and yet in the midst of that, I have been sustained by God's faithfulness to me. And I think the main, one of the main ways I've, I've witnessed this faithfulness is through people like yourselves, other congregants I've gotten to work with. People who have come to me and, and come to our church and say, I don't know exactly what I have to offer, but I care about God's heart for racial justice and I want to be a part of it here at Bethany. And so I've seen them step up. I've seen God use them to to lead uh, book studies for for high schoolers, to create meeting spaces for congregants of color, to create spaces to learn about restorative justice dialogues, to organize services of lament, lament for our sins of racial injustice. And the list goes on and on, but the point is all these people were faithful in their own ways. They all offered what they had. They all took a step of faithful engagement, not knowing exactly what it would look like. And that's the kind of faithfulness I'm inviting us into. I'm going to invite the band up as as we close, but I'm going to kind of close with this question. What might faithfulness amidst racism look like for you at this point in your life with these people around you and with God's spirit within you? Perhaps it may begin with reflecting on the ways you may have been unfaithful to this call. But my hope is that no matter where we're at or, or who we are, we will be people who not just receive life by the Spirit, who enjoy it, but who keep in step with the Spirit. A Spirit who, who brings comfort to the racially excluded, who brings a challenge to the idolatry of racism, and who brings ultimately a commission to all God's people to faithfully engage with the spiritual sort of work 
in God's world. May it be so. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you um, are a faithful God, and as we engage um, in the sermon series and in the complexity of it all, God, may we hold fast to who you are. Um, may it make us uncomfortable, um, but ultimately hopeful that our hope is not in our own ability, our own strength, our own intelligence, but ultimately who you are. So may we be that kind of spirit-filled people that you reveal to us in um, the early church, God. May we just respond uh, accordingly to, to how you're moving in our spirit, Lord, in our lives, in this community. It's in your name we pray. Amen.